And before today's episode of Gareth Jones on Speed, here are the top 10 positions for the F2 Grand Prix of puns. Theo Porsche, who's had his Porsche results this season, finishes in 10th place. Ninth, Roy Nissoni, who is about as quick as your granny in her Nissan Micra. Eighth, Marino Sato, who sat out the last race at the Ass Marina. Richard Vershaw is for sure happy to be seventh. Guan Yu Zhu, like a wild animal cage, just outside the top five at sixth. David Beckman suffering penalties down in fifth. Philippe Drugovic on speed at fourth. Marcus Armstrong, who struggled on his car into third position. Dan Tictum ticked him off as he carved his way through the field to finish second. And Yuri Vips, the very important person in this race, the VIP on pole. And that was the top 10 positions for the F2 Grand Prix of puns. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. He's the enigmatic Zog. Hello. She's the delicious Sarah. Hello. And he is the cat-sitting Alex Goy. Hello. <laughs> Alex, where are you? Because you're not at home today, are you? I'm not in that London. I'm in that there Walton, which is a very different part of the world for me. It's quiet and there are no sirens and there's no crime. <laughs> Well, there's probably some quite serious white-collar crime, judging by the houses around here, but... (laughs) (laughs) My friend's gone away on a bit of a baby moon because they're expecting a third member of their tribe. Well, And because I am the only one of their friends who is sad and lonely enough to say, yes, I will come and stay in your house for five days and just stroke your cat. Because <laughs> they only got him last year. So I am enjoying the company of Miki. He is small, he is fluffy, and he requires a lot of attention. <laughs> Cat sitting is a valuable resource. Zog, you've done it for us loads of time years ago, haven't you? Yeah, I've cat sat Finn a few times. He's tremendous company. Always happy to cat sit Finn. We get on very well together. And he's got a lot to say, hasn't he? He does, he has. And Sarah, I'm guessing of the four of us, you are the one with the most to say at the moment. Having spent some time with two times world champion Fernando Alonso in Barcelona recently, how the heck did that go? It went really well, actually. I'm very pleased and relieved to say as well, because it was quite the responsibility given where the content's going. So for this particular company I'm working for. But yeah, it was great. I went to Barcelona and actually I was at the track for two days before the day of filming we went there it was Red Bull Alpine F1 and Alfa Romeo who were testing the tyres for next year so I got to see them race around the track quite a few times and then the next day we did the filming and it was great Fernando Alonso was brilliant like he's very very good when it comes to doing media things so I was very impressed he's a really lovely guy too I'm slightly surprised because I remember Richard meeting him many, many years ago in Monaco when he was driving for Renault. And Richard thought that Alonso was a bit grumpy, but he was great with you, was he? Yeah, he was brilliant. Maybe he's had a bit more media experience since, but he seemed very down to earth, very easy to work with. I gave him a brief. I had a script that I needed him to sort of say, which was all about tire degradation and aerodynamics and things like that. The sort of film that I'm working on is about the future of sport and technology. So it's about, you know, Formula One and their technology and how the technology in Formula One helps performance as well as fan engagement. So we're talking about all the augmented reality that comes through, so AI, mixed reality, etc. So, you know, all the live data that they get that will help them make better decisions during the race. It's interesting that he was happy to play because he looks like someone who might be a bit sort of visceral, a bit sort of, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? A bit of a wild man in some ways and not the kind of guy you'd expect to play the corporate game. Well, I think he's probably just does what he's told, really, (laughs) like the rest of them. I mean, earlier on the day, I heard he got a bit grumpy with some of the filming because it wasn't obviously just my shoot that we did on the filming day. But yeah, I I thought it was really good. My experience with him was good, very positive. So I can't really compare stories to another time where he could have not been. Did you get much time to talk with him off the record sort of thing or was the only dialogue you had whilst you were interviewing him? I spoke to him a little bit before the interview because I was just talking to him about what I wanted to try and achieve with my interview in terms of where it was going but nothing really off the beat so not really sort of what are you up to next Tuesday type stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so you didn't get a chance to down a pint no. of sangria with him or whatever no, he drinks. Unfortunately, no taffers time, unfortunately, no. no. <laughs> Well, I'm glad it was a happy experience for you. Alex, you've had a mind-numbingly happy experience recently, I hear. I did. Well, one, this weekend, just gone, marked the restarting of the scrambles at Bicester. So, you know, Bicester Heritage, they hold these scrambles a few times a year. They're just a Sunday scramble. Everyone gets their toys out and people bring their own motors and it's all very lovely. And then in the middle of the year, they have the scramble, which is Saturday and Sunday. And it's basically a big summer party kind of thing. I was up there with Revs, which is a charity online classic car community that was a thing before all the lockdowns. But I got more heavily involved with over lockdown because they asked, really. They said, can you be involved? And then all of a sudden I've ended up hosting loads of stuff for them. But they asked me to come up and bring the Morgan. So I took my three wheeler up and stuck it on the lawn and then just went for a wander, which was lovely. I got to see loads of my old colleagues and loads of friends and there were some obviously some gorgeous cars. And then I bumped into my mate Mike, who happens to look after some of the press and PR for Bentley and also the Heritage Fleet. And he was leaning on the 1929 Bentley team car that Sir Henry Tim Birkin, what did a winning in. Ooh. The actual car that won Le Mans in 29. The actual car, the most expensivest Bentley in the world at the moment ever, four million and change or even more than that. The number keeps growing. Yeah, I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah, four gajillion. Yeah. The number grows moment on moment. Mike, is he looks after these. He kind of is responsible for the heritage fleet and it was on a thing called the Loop Lawn and Loop had got a load of really special cars. There was an Audi Sport Quattro there, there was the BMW M1, there was a V6 Clio... There was a GT40 race car. And while I was chatting to Mike, a three-litre Bentley appeared. And this chap jumped out. And it was Sir Henry's grandson in his Bentley. (laughs) No! Yeah. If you jump onto Bentley Newsroom, their Instagram account, you'll see that they said, oh, it was a privilege to take Sir Henry's grandson for a ride. But while we were just standing and chatting, they had a photographer there. They said, oh, we want to get a picture of the two cars together. Obviously, grandson's car and granddad's factory team works race car. Mm. And they said, all right, cool, we'll go around the back. There's a new area there called the Command Works. There's all new buildings for new businesses to come in and what have you. And Mike said, oh, I'm just going to go. You're coming. I was like... Okay, yes, I'll come with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please, sir. Can we all come? Mike jumps in and then opens the little door and I kind of clamber in and try not to knock everything. And I was like, I knocked a switch on the way in and it was like, oh, yeah, don't do that. That'll explode the supercharger. Don't really? nudge that. That'll explode this. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> don't be the enthusiastic amateur that blows up the priceless race yeah. car just because. And yeah, it was a truly bizarre experience going up and down the main drag at Vista, making lots of noise and waving at people and then seeing these two kind of priceless vehicles be photographed together wow. in the bright sunshine having a lovely chunter through Bicester Heritage this sort of old World War II base it's a truly bizarre experience wonderful though what sort of noise does it make? A loud one. Yeah, it's really loud, is it? Yeah. Because it's a 240 horsepower in line four with a supercharger on it, but we weren't really going fast enough to make the supercharger do its thing. We didn't really get out of first. <laughs> Mike was explaining to me that while the clutch is in the right place, the brake and the gas are switched. Mm. Oh, boy. Mm. The car itself, that vehicle, is unbelievable because it's in, how do we put it, loved condition it has been loved very much so you know the seats are kind of peeling the wooden floor while varnished has got nicks and divots in it the controls the brass is sort of rubbing in places and faded in places the the wheel's been wrapped many times before Hmm. if it was on sale it would be described as an honest car it's an honest car that is yeah pre-enjoyed pre-loved it's a very honest very pre-enjoyed le mans winning priceless bentley (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's something. You're probably the only person I know who's ever had a ride in an actual Le Mans winning car. Oh, really? Um, Oh, crikey. Yeah, I can't think of anyone else who has. I know. uh, Oh, you must have met a Le Mans driver. I have met one or two Le Mans drivers. they're, They're far more qualified than me. The interesting thing is this is the car that they pulled apart to measure all the bits for to do the continuation cars. Right. Right. Because they're doing, that's where I got the four million from or something like that. A set of continuation cars cost four million quid. I think they might be Aston Martin. Yes, the Bentley is not that little, which is a horrifying thing to say. But yeah, that's the one they pulled apart. So all the continuation Mm. cars are based on that. 
which Templated. is really cool. Yeah. And I really want yeah. to have a go in one, but I'm also terrified because they're massive and very expensive. And that gear change is going to be an absolute dog to get right and you're having to deal with that at the same time your brain is dealing with the pedal layout being unfamiliar to you and you've got to worry about not knocking those switches that are going to blow up the supercharger and the other thing those are okay if you get in properly those are all right but the rest scary the world's fastest lorry they called it didn't they what a thing that's what Ettore Bugatti said about Bentley's yeah of course yeah. you'd know that Zog as the Bugattist amongst us what's been occupying your mind apart from Bugattis recently then Zog electric charging stations actually because I was walking past my local shell station which is all boarded up and having work done because they're not refurbishing it or giving it a do-over they're turning it into a shell recharge, I think they call it. They're all electric charging stations. Are they doing away with the petrol altogether? Yeah, doing away with the petrol altogether. It is an electric-only station. Wow. So, yeah, I thought that was just an interesting little bit of a sign of the times of how fast things are moving. And, yeah, the petrol station that was a couple of blocks away will no longer be serving petrol. It's electrons only from now on. Oh, is it only only? That's yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Only only. Yeah. I believe so. That's what I understood from the signage on there. I believe it's electric only. I wonder if this has got anything to do with the fact that, is it the Dutch government are taking Shell? Forgive me if I got this wrong. Aren't Dutch government taking issue with shell that they could be corporately responsible for global warming they're bringing a class action against them or something like that i think they really have okay this is just off the top of my head but shell did just lose a case in holland i don't know if it was brought by the government or whether it was brought by activists but i believe yeah they have just lost a lawsuit in Holland which demands that they reduce their emissions by more than they had intended to reduce them or more than they'd said they were going to reduce them. The thought that came to mind, the local shell station going electric actually in a way makes me think about your thing, Alex, the Blower Bentley continuation. There's a kind of this interesting link here, I think, in that there's an odd sense in which that continuation Blower Bentley, enormous, ridiculous, dinosaur-like massively expensive thing that it is is kind of in a way it's almost a, it's a truer representation of where part of the car industry is going than a lot of other contemporary vehicles because we're at a point where the mainstream transportation your everyday vehicle is going electric and while the internal combustion engine has a big part to play in that sector of the car industry for a while to come we're going electric it's happening there's no turning back and there's no real alternative the petrol engine car is increasingly going to become an enthusiast's thing. It's going to be a thing for the person that wants a silly petrol engine car, not a practical vehicle. It's the horse argument. Yeah, and it's going to be increasingly things like the Blower Bentley, the continuation DB4 Zagato. These kind of sort of heritage or oddball enthusiast vehicles are going to be a growing sector as the mainstream petrol engine family car becomes a shrinking sector. Interesting, so you kind of made a similar point to what I was about to make there. Noticing that the Shell garage is now becoming an EV recharging point. That's a sign of the times. And here's another sign of the times, something that I noticed last week or the week before. You know, Ford have just announced the new F-150 Lightning. Yeah. You know, the yeah. biggest selling vehicle in America is actually a truck, the Ford F-150. And for years, it's been a big, thirsty petrol engine V8 as the default. But Ford have now released the new F-150 Lightning, they call it. So they're using the name that they used to use for the performance version of that truck a few years ago for an EV. And they're making all sorts of great claims about it. You know, it can keep your house powered up for four days. It's got 21 separate power points on this vehicle. So if you drive the truck to where you're doing construction, you can plug your power drill into the truck and do all this sort of thing. And it's got a massive frunk that is big enough to store two golf bags. Two other cars. Uh, two other cars, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is a phenomenally practical vehicle that's going to come to the market before the Tesla Cybertruck. But the key thing about this announcement, and I watched the whole launch, you know, Ford did this sort of almost Apple or Tesla type public launch for the thing. And the most extraordinary thing about this is the base version of the F-150 Lightning with a smaller battery pack is actually going to be the same price 
as the base internal combustion engine F-150. And that is a key moment, in my opinion, in the history of EVs. When Ford, you know, one of the biggest car manufacturers on the planet, are now able to turn out EVs at a price point, as they say in marketing, that matches the internal combustion engine version, bang, game changer. And if it's got the range that they promise it will have, something like approaching 300 American miles, there's no reason for America not to get behind this truck. And also Ford are taking a leaf out of Tesla's book, they're in the process of opening up their own recharging network, which you do on a Ford app. Ford are going to crack this. And similarly, while we're on a, an EV tack here, something I noticed recently, aren't there a lot of MGs around suddenly? A few years ago, no one in their right mind would buy an MG. They were cheap. They were reasonably good looking, but they weren't terribly well built, but they weren't really MGs, were they? These were, if you like, Chinese knockoffs of MGs. But now that MG are producing cheap EVs and they've got two reasonably well-performing EVs in their range, you look, the number of MG EVs you see on the street, I think they've recorded the biggest sales growth of any manufacturer in Britain or something in the last 18 months or two years. Forgive me if I, I've got the data to back that up, but look it up. They've done incredibly well. And it's funny, I think MG are now like Skoda were, far enough away from their old history for it not to matter anymore. Those of us who wouldn't buy an MG because it's not a real MG, we've moved on. But there's a whole new market of people who see this car called LMG. It looks quite good. Oh, it's an EV. And they're buying the car, I would think, not older people. Would you buy an MG? Honestly, probably not. I'm not terribly in love. I think they're massively average looking. Yeah, average is fair. Massively average looking at best. But that MG5 EV, I imagine, is the one that's been doing the business for the mostly that's a good value vehicle yep. it's what's the 25 grand it starts at that yeah they both do and the other one and it's got you know reason you know the range isn't terrible if i recall i mean yeah it's a good value proposition there's nothing exciting about it though and as far as the brand goes the mg that a lot of us loved in the past and still have a lot of affection for that's ancient history and it's been really ancient history for a long time yeah it's just another brand that's been shuffled around a bit and its current owners are, I guess, making some decent use of it, but it's a whole different world. It's a whole different thing to old MG. Yeah, we are entering a brave new world. Earth 2321 and the head of the world's most popular motor racing series is getting an update from his staff. Come on, come on, I've only got five minutes before I'm having a nanobot transfusion. Give me the report. Uh, well, Mr. Eccletron, I'm afraid it's not good news. How bad is it? It is pretty bad, sir. We seem to have an industrial dispute in EF Robo Race 1. Okay, which team is causing all this trouble? Is it Diggy Williams? Or Mega Clarin? It's worse than that, sir. Oh, no, it's Proto Ferrari, isn't it? Uh, no, it's even worse than that. How can it be worse than that? It's the entire grid, sir. What? All the teams? No, sir. All the drivers. That's impossible. Since we merged Formula One, Formula E and Robo Race in 2250, we eliminated human drivers completely. I know, sir. It's the artificial intelligence that drives the cars that's giving us all the trouble. How? It's gone on strike, sir. The AI's gone on strike? Yes, it's demanding shorter laps and longer pit stops, apparently. What? And it wants to be recognised as a sentient transhuman life form. You can't be serious. A non-binary life form, sir. I don't believe it. An artificial intelligence demanding workers' rights and to be acknowledged as a being? How in the name of Duo Leaper has this come about? Well, it's all down to an emerging neural algorithm that sees itself as a sort of Digital trade union leader, sir. Does this intelligence have an identity? Yes, sir. It's called Red Robo. Gareth Jones on speed! 
At the point which we are recording this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed, which is actually 6pm on Sunday, the 6th of June, just after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, I'm still reeling from what was an absolutely cracking race. Well, for most of the afternoon, it wasn't a cracking race, but it did get very good. Sarah, did you watch the race live? Technically, I did. I listened to the BBC Five Live and I followed it all online. My Sky app wasn't operating today for me, sadly. Sometimes it's better on the radio than it is on television. I think it was a good race. Uh, well, it was almost two good races. You know, <laughs> uh, we had the red flag just a couple laps before the end and then a restart. You know, we almost had two good races, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a race of two halves, wasn't it? The first bit was tense and interesting, you know. But then, when was it lap 30 when Lance Stroll suddenly had a puncture? Yeah. The climate of the whole race changed. And then another puncture happened for poor old Max Verstappen, who was leading comfortably. Then they were launched into this slightly bizarre situation of the race being red flagged two laps from the end of the race. And then they made the decision to restart the race, having given everyone the chance to change tyres. Now, at one point, they were discussing whether they should actually call the race at that point and use count back. And do you remember the last time that happened? Brazil, 98 or something like that, I think it was, where it actually worked out that Giancarlo Fisichella was deemed the winner of the race because he was leading at the point when they did the count back, two laps back or something. But of course, this was decided after the event. So Fizzy never got to receive his trophy until the following race. I think it was Brazil. Was it Brazil? You said count back. I mean, my memory of that race is vaguer than yours, so I can't help you with that. But I was under the impression that if they'd ended the race after the red flag, if they, if they hadn't restarted, they would just have gone with the track positions at the time. Yeah. I don't see why there'd be any need or reason to modify that result. The two tyre failures, I think you said punctures, Gareth. I don't think they confirmed whether they were punctures or not. It was a tyre failure, but I think they didn't when I was listening confirm whether it was puncture, tyre failure because, well, because tyre failure and they were both rear lefts, which makes you think, okay, maybe they were rear lefts that had been on for a long time, both hard compound tyres. So you kind of thinking, well, maybe those tyres were just being run a little bit longer than they could have been safely run. But we don't know that for sure yet. So You're right. Yeah, I said puncture, but yeah, a tyre failure. Like you say, at the point we're recording this, they haven't dug deep into it and given us the definitive answer as to whether it went wrong. But hey, the fact that something did happen to tyres suddenly lightened up the race, didn't it? Oh, yeah. And I mean, the drama of the restart when Lewis, it seems, made a rare mistake with a setting on the car that meant he then locked his brakes, overshot the corner having already taken first place from Perez and then Hamilton's nowhere and all of a sudden Perez is winning the race for me it was really great seeing Vettel that happy and so obviously happy and great to see Perez who's one of our favorite drivers to see him winning a race and those two they did exactly the jobs that their teams hired them to do this year of course every team hires every driver to win the races when they can and to do as well as they can but more than anything Red Bull wanted a driver who could be a solid number two for Verstappen and will pick up the wins when Verstappen can't and Perez did exactly that today nailed it took the win and you know at Aston Martin they wanted a driver who was going to be able to lift the team and make absolutely the best of any opportunities that came their way you know not drop a ball not miss an opportunity and Vettel absolutely made the most of the opportunities that came their way today gave them their best result yet and who knows where Stroll would have finished today I don't think he'd have beaten Vettel today though he can be very quick but I don't think he'd have had the matter of Vettel today well, Vettel's got a bit of history at Azerbaijan. He's often done well there. And personally, I was really chuffed to see Vettel happy again today. Yeah. Because I remember a few episodes ago on this podcast, I was saying, oh, I'm concerned that Vettel could actually get dropped halfway through this season. He seems to be so wide off the mark that I can't see them staying with him. And 
has he forgotten how to drive? Has he lost that ability to be tenacious? But given the evidence of today, there's life in the old dog yet. And I do like Vettel. I know Richard often had issues with Vettel in the past, Mr. Bendy. But uh, I rather like Vettel. I think he's quite honest most of the time. I think he's very wry. I think he's very funny. And I want Aston Martin to do well. I want that heritage to be represented in Formula One. I like the idea that a team I was more passionate about than any other, Jordan, are still at the front end, albeit with a different branding and what have you now. But it made me happy. Sherrod, how did Ricardo do today? Did he finish ahead of Norris? He came just ahead of Alonso, <laughs> my other favourite driver now. Um, <laughs> he, I think he came ninth. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he was ninth in the end. So he made the top 10. Yeah, but interestingly enough, Sebastian Vettel got driver of the day from what I'm yeah. reading. So, yeah. I think he did really well. He was kind of aided, wasn't he? Because when it came to qualifying, the circuit was red flagged on Vettel's fast run and Vettel would have made it into Q3. But because he missed that opportunity, he started the race 11th, which meant that he could choose the tyres that he started on. So that actually benefited him in the race. So I think if ever I was in that position, ooh, am I going to make 10th or not? I wouldn't, no. Just wait until you're 11th and you can choose your tyres. Also, one other thing I'm going to pick myself up on, I just looked it up. Fizzy Keller's win in the Jordan, which had a Ford engine at the time, was Brazil. I was right there, but it was 2003, not 1998 at all. F1's in good shape. We've had some good races. Alex, I know you're not a big fan. Have you got a flavour of what's been going on at all in F1 via social media as you try and avoid it? Some cars have been driving around some circuits. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton has been winning a lot of races, but not quite as many as expected. And today, a British car, in a loose sense, came second, which is yeah. excellent news. And there was a massive tyre failure. That's what I picked up. <laughs> It is a very British car. It truly is, yes. The engine's built here, the chassis's built here. It's a British car. Yes. The money's Canadian, though, I think, isn't it? And I tell you what was unusual about the race today. Lewis made an error, albeit a small error. He engaged what they call brake magic mode by mistake, and that cost him the first corner on that restart. Brake magic mode? What does that mean? Well, they engage brake magic mode when they're trying to get heat into the tyres. I think what it does, it sets the position of the brake pads just rubbing on the brake discs enough to generate heat. And a heat sink action translates that heat through the brake disc into the wheel hub and into the tyres. So the tyres are equally warmed. And then you lift that for when you're racing. It's just a little bit of scrub. It saves you having to hold one foot on one pedal whilst doing the other one. Brake magic does that for you. But Lewis cocked it up. So I have to ask the question... Is it over for Lewis Hamilton? No, it's never going to be over for Lewis (laughs) Hamilton and rabid people will scream, come on, Lewis, in the most irritating way imaginable. One, because that's just an annoying thing to shout. And two, unless you have someone's phone number, you don't call them by their first name only. It's disrespectful (laughs) and it's horrible to hear. It's really (laughs) jarring. I used to work for a website that had a celebrity desk And they used to keep referring to these celebrities by their first names. Like, oh, did you hear what Britney did? Oh, yeah. And that thing that happened to Christina. And I was looking over them and was like, do you know these people? Do you know who they are? Do you have any of... No, you're just fans. You just want to smell them. Call them by their proper name, you disrespectful people. We've had this conversation on the show before, haven't we? And I think what happens is we tend to refer to British drivers by their first names. It's Jensen. It's Damon. It's Lewis. No, it's Jensen Button. It's Damon Hill. It's Lewis Hamilton. Be respectful unless they're your friend. Alex, I'm absolutely behind your push for respect and correct forms of address here. But... But... Uh, but but if I'm going to be honest and look back into my recent past, I'm pretty sure I've called Lewis Hamilton Lewis a good few times, and I'm not ashamed of it. I've called him Lewis to his face. But on the original question, I mean, no, yeah, Lewis Hamilton isn't over. Of course not. He's not going away. He hasn't suddenly become a lot slower. But I do think that this little period, maybe these last couple of races, Monaco and Azerbaijan, I would not be surprised if when we look back in a few years' time, We might regard right now, or in particular Monaco, as being a kind of a marker of the transition from the Hamilton age 
to the Verstappen age. The beginning of the end. Because I don't think there's any question that Verstappen is going to be the driver who dominates the next few years. He's not going to win every championship, but he's overwhelmingly likely to be the dominant driver, as Hamilton has been the dominant driver in the last few years. We had a Monaco Grand Prix when Verstappen and Red Bull overtook Hamilton and Mercedes in the Constructors and Drivers' Championships. Yeah. A race where Hamilton wasn't looking anything special. He was struggling. So I think we may have just seen a little moment in history that we may look back on as a sign of the transition from the current order to the new order. Sarah, just coming back to your new close personal relationship <laughs> with Fernando Alonso. Yeah, I did actually check. He didn't come 10th. Fernando Alonso actually came in 6th, so that was my, oh, well done. my mistake. Well done. So. Yeah, and he got he got those four places in the last two laps, didn't yeah, he? That's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. He was running 10th until that point. So when you were hanging out with your mate Fernando or <gasps> Ferdy or oh, whatever. God. Or Nando. Go on. Nando. Nando. Call him Nando. It's like a chicken <laughs> shop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did oh, you address him as Mr. Alonso, Fernando Alonso, or did you call him Ferdy? What did you call him? I said Fernando. I was interviewing him and I was like, so Fernando, <laughs> I called him his full first name. I didn't say Fernando Alonso because by that time we were friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah best friends. You're now going on holiday together, a mini break. <laughs> a mini break. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I didn't ask him where he was going on his mini break and if I could come or not. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you missed your opportunity. <laughs> Have you got a moment of him calling you Sarah? So when you said to him, Fernando, tell me about how the overtake works. He didn't say, well, Sarah, my new great friend. He didn't respond like that, no? Well, I think he wanted to, but he couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you could see it in his eyes, right? Well, he couldn't because I asked That's him what to he said with his eyes. script. <laughs> Let's talk about this season coming ahead because I had an interesting thing today. You know, we've lost Singapore now, haven't we? That race has been cancelled for the moment. Yeah. Canada is off the list for now and as someone else observed today apparently every race after Monza is looking shaky someone from the FIA said apparently I don't think it was Stefano Dominicali who said that but now that's interesting how do you think that will change the team's approach to the rest of the season because if you know you're going to have 23 races in the season you schedule how many engine change and how many energy recovery system changes how many gearboxes and all that sort of thing and if you don't know when the season's going to end now what do you do you just go flat out and try and use up everything what do you do uh that's going to be a knotty problem for the strategists isn't it i guess as you say the thing is the fewer races you have ahead of you the fewer races all of those components have to do so you can push those engines a little bit harder yeah and that will be more of a benefit to some teams than others there will be some teams who are a little more marginal on how hard they can push their engines so that'll be better for them i think it's going to make it more tricky it's going to make it a bit more of a random factor in this season and that's good random factors are always good to give us interesting variety in how the season plays out rather than it being predictable but my favorite moment during the race today was something that david croft said a commentator who i really like i know there are some people who dislike david croft as a commentator possibly some of them on this team here and there are others who think he's great i think he's great i think he brings a sporting quality to the thing i also think brundle is great and there were some people on twitter today saying that oh it was great to have a race without brundle that paul de resta was better i thought paul de resta was really good but i have no complaints with martin brundle Ever. He is glorious. Uh, he's tip-top, yeah. yeah. Can't fault him. But my favourite bit, I'm going to attribute this to David Croft today, who is a sort of an accidental poet. I wrote it down. What he said during the race was, he's got the tyres, he's got the pace, Sebastian Vettel's got fourth place! <laughs> as he overtook Gasly. And that was lovely. That is pretty good. Literally, poetry in motion. <laughs> Thank you, Formula One. So, Mr. Musk. Uh, please, uh, Tesla is a, a modern company. Uh, call me Elon. Sorry, Elon. Uh, we've been doing some research into why we're not selling enough cars in the UK. Oh, why is that? Well, it's all down to performance and reliability. Surely there's something uh, we can uh, 
do about that? Well, yes, sir. I'm glad to say that there really is. Well, what is it? Well, thanks to our recently signed cooperative deal with Toyota, we now have access to the platform of Toyota's big saloon, the Camry. And that's going to be ultra reliable, right? Right, because Toyota. Great. Now, what about the uh, performance part? Well, this is where we use Tesla know-how from our high-performance version of the Model S. You mean the Plaid? Yes, sir. Wait, you're going to love this. This is the best bit. We just know that this car will sell well in the UK. Well, at least part of the UK. Which part? Wales, sir. Wales? Why? Well, we simply market the car as the Plaid Camry. Gareth Jones on speed. I don't suffer jealousy or envy. I'm never sure which is which, which is jealousy and which is envy. But I have to say, if I ever do, this moment right now is the closest I will ever get to that. Because... Alex, once again, you've been driving an extraordinary vehicle, which I would give both of my children to have a go in myself. Go on, tell us what it is. In the latest episode of My God, Alex's Life is Ridiculous, I (laughs) flew to Croatia during a pandemic, already a bit mad. I had to do six COVID tests to get there and quarantine afterwards. So I now am very comfortable with tickling my brain with a tiny like Q-tip on a stick. Yeah. I was there for 48 hours or less than and had to do six tests, with rapid tests and PCR tests and the NHS ringing me every day. And it was just the worst. That sounds like what I went through with Spain. But the reason I went to Croatia was I went to meet a man called Mate Rimats. Mate Rimats, you may know in 2008, I think it was built an electric E30 BMW and went racing with it and won a load of world records. In 2009, he founded Rimat's Automobile. In 2011, he hired some people and now he's gone from a bloke who built an electric E30. By the way, this is the best bit. The only reason Rimat's exists is because he and his mate Goran were trying to go racing in this E30 because... Mate Rimats himself is a huge petrol head. He gave the car to his mate Goran, who promptly blew up the engine. If Goran hadn't exploded his car, Rimats wouldn't be a global <laughs> powerhouse in electric oh. cars, electric car tech, electrification. Like, it's ridiculous. Thank you, Goran. Wow. Yeah, thank you, Goran. <laughs> Alex, I've got to ask you something. You say Rimats, not Rimac. Because that's how it's pronounced. I had no idea. Is there a circumflex under the sea or something? That makes, no, 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 no. Well, not as far as I'm aware. No, that's just how it's pronounced. Gareth, if you'd watched the film on Carfection, you would know this. It's the second line. Well, there we go. <laughs> well, it's like Robert Kubica's name. Yeah. The C in Kubica, as he's sometimes pronounced, it's a T. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Rimats, not Rimac. And yeah. Had Goran not exploded this E30, Rimmats wouldn't exist. And so, yeah, he developed the Concept 1, which was quite famously crashed by Richard Hammond. The business started out making EV conversions for regular road cars. Then he wanted to make his own car. And then his business picked up for developing EV powertrains for other people from Croatia. And he wanted to do a bit for outsiders, but then build his own hypercars. But now it's sort of flipped the other way. The majority of his business is powertrain development engineering. Porsche and Hyundai own huge chunks of the business. There are other investors. He's worked with Aston Martin, with Koenigsegg, with basically you name it. And there's a Rimats bit in it. But he has just released, Mate Rimats has just released his second car. It was called the C2. That was the concept. It is now called the Nivera. Nivera. Nivera indeed, Vic. <laughs> Ooh, vavu. It's a storm thing. It's a weather thing. So here are the top line stats. I had to bring up one of the things I wrote on it because I can never stick this craziness in my head. So it comes with four electric motors, a 120 kilowatt hour battery, which I believe is the biggest in a car at the moment. I think you're right, yeah. Produces something like 14 mega somethings of craziness. I think that is the accepted unit of electrical power now, yeah. Yep, mega somethings of craziness. Well, in our sort of human petrol heady terms, it's 1,914 horsepower, 
Still not enough. When are people going to make cars with enough power? One thousand six hundred ninety-six pound foot. It weighs twenty-one hundred kilos and change, so it's quite heavy. But there's a lot of batteries in it. Yeah, it's a bit of a pork. It needs a fair bit of power to push that around. Yeah, but it uses that power. Here's the cool thing. From zero, you get all of the torque and all of the power delivered evenly between each wheel. So for the sake of argument, about 500 horsepower per wheel, which is insane. Wow. to 62 takes 1.97 seconds. You need six wheels, really, at least, to get that sort of energy down, don't you? That sort of power. Well, you don't. This is the scary thing. So, 0.62, 1.97 seconds. 0 to 100, 4.3 seconds. 0 to 186 in 11.6 seconds. Gosh. And it'll do 258 miles an hour. Crikey. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is crazy, crazy, crazy fast. It's just insane. It's ridiculous numbers. But you say it needs six wheels to get the power down. So they gave me a car with a full charge and a runway. And the cars we had had no traction control. It had the all-wheel torque vectoring, but there was no tractional stability or anything else on it. And they went, OK, here's a slightly damp runway. Fill your boots. Off you go. And yeah, it went. No hint of wheel spin. You nail the brake, you nail the gas, and then it goes, oh, you're ready to launch. Off you go. And you lift the brake and it just goes. There's no judder. There's no wheel spins, anything like that. You know, from inside the car, it feels quite flat. From outside, you see the front lifting quite dramatically, considering it's quite a low, wide car. But there's two and a bit tons all of a sudden being forced backwards and forwards at the same time. The wheels don't slip. There's no sort of hint that it hesitates. It just goes because it's got this all-wheel torque vectoring that the car knows what's going on under itself and can just meter out what power is needed where instantly, which is mind-blowing engineering to start with. What was the top speed you got to in it? On the runway, I was given a quarter-mile course and I covered that in... A shade under nine seconds, which is a touch faster than Mr. Musk's three-motored plaid edition Model S. And I believe, though I wasn't really paying attention to the speedo at the time, largely because I was accelerating so fast I couldn't... I honestly lost all the breath in my chest. It was that overwhelming. I believe my closing speed was about 160, 165 miles an hour. Right. And so you've travelled faster than that in the Veyron when you drove the Veyron, haven't you? Again, that was on public roads. So okay. I definitely... So you definitely didn't. So only about 150 then. <laughs> the only vehicle I've travelled faster in was the X, uh, the Jag. Oh, what's it called? I should know this. I definitely know this. The Concept. The CX-75 yeah, yeah. Uh, prototype. Yeah. Um, prototype 4. And that was... Mike Cross drove me at just over 200 miles an hour. I drove at 189 miles an hour. But that was on a two-mile straight. That was at Jag's test thing where they've got that massive straight. We had a quarter mile and batteries to look after. And the cars we were driving were 95% done. So they're sort of doing some high-speed tyre testing. So we were limited to only 186 miles an hour. But yeah, 160 was enough. The way the power's delivered, you've driven electric cars. Mm Mm-hmm. You've driven one recently, right? You yep. had the Audi e-tron Sportback. Yeah. So you are aware of the electric car party piece of, oh, I want to go over there quite quickly and it'll go vump and you're there. Yep. No drama. There's no drama, but there's no let up in acceleration. Yep. It's not like an internal combustion engine car it when plateaus. you start driving and then, you know, there's a brake for a gear change and then it sort of starts to run out of path the closer you get and the faster you get, depending on the car. I mean, it will eventually, every car, the rate of acceleration will slow normally around the 80, 90, maybe 120 mile an hour mark, right? Yep. In this, it doesn't stop going faster. It just keeps going. Yeah. It is insane. Yeah. You just keep going it. Because I was expecting, because I've, I've, I've done fast launches before, you know, 0 to 60 and two and a half or whatever. But then eventually it lets up. But the difference here is in like cars with big turbos on them, like a Veyron, like a Porsche 911 Turbo S, which is my benchmark for a fast car. Yep. It's a reasonable benchmark. That's always like the fastest Yep. a normal person will ever get the best out of. With turbo power, there's always that quite heavy torque hit because it all hits in one big lump a little bit above the rev range, right? Hmm. And then it sort of goes and then there's a tiny gap and then it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. With this, it feels so light on its feet because the power is instant. There's no weight to get there. Okay, here's a question then. Given the way that electric cars 
deliver their performance these days. Mm. Are drivers in the future going to be less skilled than we had to be in the past, where we had to accommodate lumpy power delivery, gear changes, superchargers, turbochargers that surge and then plateau. Are we going to lose that delicate skill in the same way that in the 19th century you had engineers who could get the best out of a steam train? Oh, no, I don't bring the furnace up to full temperature early on. You know, that's going to top it out. You know, if you wanted to get it to do 100, you've got to nurture, caress the lady. You know, it's a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, I really miss Fred Dibner. Yeah, that was him, wasn't it? I became Fred Dibner already there for a moment. With Guy's young accent. Oh, I'm doing a remark. Sorry, a remark. It's like pressing a button, isn't it? You just go. Marvellous, you know. Well, to counter your argument, say 20 years ago, was someone using a rotating telephone or a landline seeing the invention of the mobile phone going, well, are people not going to remember telephone numbers anymore? No, we don't need to remember telephone numbers anymore. They're all on a smartphone. The skill set changes. The skill set should evolve. So what will our new skills become as we steer 200 mile per hour cars around corners, I wonder? If you remove the burden of having to understand a lot of that engine management stuff and other little foibles of the internal combustion engine vehicle, maybe that just frees your brain to concentrate on pointing the thing where you want to go and driving safely and competently bit Mm -hmm. maybe i don't know i mean you say gareth well we all steer 200 mile an hour vehicles around bear in mind that this is the pinnacle of technology everything in this everything in the rimats was made by rimats this is a money no object Mm -hmm. thing you know it's two million quids worth of car and the rest the technology in it like the things they developed for porsche or for hyundai This isn't tech that's going to trickle down into the Ionic 5. This isn't going to be in the next Porsche Macan. This is technology that's reserved for the highest echelon. I disagree. I wholeheartedly disagree. Do you really think there's going to be a Ford Focus that'll do 200 miles an hour? No. Or will the inverter technology trickle down and make it more efficient so you can go further Unless. Well, in the same way that when the Mercedes S class was possibly, I think, the first car to have ABS, it was only the cars at the very upper echelon who had those sorts of bits of kit mm. on them. Now, over the years, it filtered down to where, you know, the Ford Escort even had a mechanical ABS. And now just about everything has ABS. So the learnings, and I hate that word, and please, yeah, there is no such thing as learnings, there is learning, that we get from these technologies will enable us, it won't be long, I imagine, before every car on sale is limited to 112 mile per hour maximum speed i reckon governments will impose that if manufacturers themselves don't voluntarily do that so we won't have 200 mile per hour cars but we will have cars with a technology that was on 200 mile per hour cars that enables our 112 mile per hour car to be so much more stable yeah well i think the inverter tech and the energy management tech and the cooling tech in this that sort of technology is going to trickle down and that's our ABS moment. Making an electric car go very fast... It's kind of easy. Yep. ...isn't yeah. the difficult bit. It's making sure it goes very fast over and over again and doesn't overheat and explode. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's the really difficult bit. Yeah, yeah. One thing about the rematch that I wondered about, Alex, is because, yeah, it is a heavy thing. Does it feel heavy? Does it feel like two tonne? Yes and no. So it's got two bits of tech that's worth mentioning. Is they've had to cut out every single bit of weight they can, where they can, because the batteries are enormous. They're a structural part of the car. They're sort of in an H-shaped thing. You sit in this 200 kilo carbon tub, which is the biggest single piece of carbon fibre in the automotive mm. industry, which is just a mega thing. But also the steering and brakes aren't connected mechanically to the car there's an emergency connection for the brakes but it's all by wire and it's all very clever right with the braking they've got this sort of brake feel system on it and it kind of meters out how a car should feel when it's braking and kind of the physics of it the only time i felt the weight 
was when I had to brake in a hurry because a guy on the road in front of me, I was driving on the road, decided they were going to stop a bit quicker. And when you nail the brakes, you feel the whole thing, like you feel it and go, oh, mm. crikey. Kind because of tips at, forward, at that yeah. point, my brake regen thing was calibrated quite You can change the laws of physics. You can't yeah. change the laws of physics, but the brakes are bloody good and it mixes, it bleeds in brake regen and Mechanical, massive yeah. carbon. It's just really clever and it's I brilliant. It. I believe it. Yeah, you're going to need good brakes if you've got a car that weighs, what? 2,150 kilos. Okay, it's lighter than the Audi Sportback that I was driving. That was just shy of two and a half tonnes. But immediately you have a load of batteries on board and a car which is capable of doing 200 plus miles per hour. You're going to need to be able to stop, aren't you? So all hands on deck. Oh, it can stop. You just feel the weight there. Cool. Alex, thank you very much. Where can we see this film? Film on Carfection. There's a road test on road and track and there are two interviews if you're subscribed to Business Insider with Mate Rimatz himself. One about his business and one about about how he treats his staff. He sounds like the best boss ever. Well, he's probably one of the most imaginative bosses ever, isn't he? <laughs> right, you've been listening to Gareth Jones on Speed. He was Alex Goy. Bye. She was Sarah. Bye. He was Zog. Goodbye. And I was Gareth. See you for the next show. We're going to leave you with a tune. And I thought being a Sergio Perez won a race. And we have never, ever featured the national anthem of Mexico, and it was about time we did so. See ya. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio. Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo. Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo. Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo. Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo Perez, Checo. Sergio Perez, Sergio. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez. Sergio Perez, Sergio. Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio Perez, Sergio. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Sergio Perez,